This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Paul Drazik with DTB Associates. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Global sugar subsidies are increasing and a threat to 142,000 sugar industry jobs in the U.S. Learn more about the American Sugar Alliance Zero for Zero Sugar Policy at SugarAlliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Global Trade Specialist Paul Drazik next. Sugar subsidies in 120 countries are on the rise and threatening 142,000 U.S. jobs. That's why the American Sugar Alliance is pushing for a global subsidy ceasefire. Their goal is a subsidy-free world market that fosters efficiency. They know that unilateral disarmament of America's no-cost policy without concessions from abroad will only outsource U.S. jobs and reward foreign subsidizers. The plan is called the Zero for Zero Sugar Policy. And you can learn more at SugarAlliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The Trump administration's hard line on global trade agreements and use of tariffs to bring about negotiations has yielded some positive results as late. Paul Drazik with DTB Associates has more than 40 years' experience working in the global trade arena on behalf of U.S. agriculture. He says the best news so far perhaps is more over what didn't happen than what did. Well, I'd like to be optimistic. I'm not right now. Maybe my mood will change. (laughs) The single most important thing that I think was accomplished this past year was one of agriculture's most uh, important objectives, which was to do no harm with respect to NAFTA. Having reached an agreement with uh, Canada and Mexico recently, I think uh, dispels any concern about pulling out of NAFTA, which was uh, the biggest fear for many in agriculture. But having said that, I also have to qualify it by saying that we're actually still worse off in agriculture, even if this new agreement uh, makes it, its way through Congress as in, and is enacted, as long as the retaliation that Mexico hit us with as a result of our steel and aluminum tariffs remains in effect, because we're still worse off, even with the new NAFTA agreement in place, because of those retaliatory tariffs. So we're really getting hit on a number of products, uh, pork and dairy in, in particular. Senator Grassley over the past week suggested he was having a little bit more optimism now with the administration's trade agenda. Uh, Are there brighter spots here, and are there signs that perhaps, although he's taken the long road, this might be the right road for agriculture? You know, I've been around long enough to know how these things work and what to expect. I'm a little bit fearful because of my experience with past negotiations that proponents of negotiations and proponents of agreements I think tend to overstate the the benefits of the agreements and opponents tend to overstate the the risks and dangers and bad things that will happen as a result of trade agreements. So it's likely that the truth is somewhere in between. The problem is that, uh, for example, Korea, we didn't get anything in agriculture in Korea. They tinkered with it, fixed a few things, but mainly it involved steel, which is a preoccupation of many in the administration, the Commerce Department, and and others. With respect to the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, we'll have to see. The USITC, the International Trade Commission, is going to be doing a nonpartisan, unbiased analysis of the economic impact of that. 
And I believe for agriculture, it's going to be very, very small. Even in dairy, where that's being touted by proponents, I really don't think it's a big deal. It's definitely not going to help very much. Uh, and you probably noticed recently the dairy industry is asking for more money to offset the harm done by the retaliation against our exports, especially into Mexico. So we'll have to see about that agreement. Uh, I, I think it's it's being oversold a bit by the administration, and uh, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. And then you've got the other ones, the uh, U.S., negotiations that are uh, going to start up, presumably, with the uh, European Union. The Europeans have said very clearly that agriculture is not going to be included. The administration says it is going to be included, and it absolutely has to be included in order to pass muster in Congress. But the Europeans are still dug in on it not being included. You may recall that when they announced this decision to proceed with negotiations, president said that uh, the EU had committed to buy a lot of soybeans from the U.S., and it turns out that what the EU did was made assurances that the EU would be buying more soybeans because they can't get as much from Brazil anymore because they're all going, Brazil's all going to China, and our price is low. So there was an assurance that Europe would be buying more soybeans, but there was no commitment whatsoever to buy more soybeans from the U.S. Japan, those negotiations are just beginning, and, and I expect that they probably won't become serious until 2019. But the administration has already made clear that they're not going to expect Japan to do any more on agriculture than what we would have gotten had we finalized and approved TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. If we could get that from Japan, that would be good, and that's a bright spot. But that's going to be a long, drawn-out negotiation, in my opinion, uh, mainly because of concerns that Japan has about automobiles and the threat of tariffs on automobiles. So let's look at the USMCA. Senator Rob Portman suggested that before this administration could hope for the USMCA to have uh, approval in the U.S. Congress, those tariffs on steel and aluminum need to go away. What does it take to move us off-center and truly take down those tariffs and get back to free trade across the borders of the U.S., Canada, and Mexico? Yeah, he's right. Uh, absolutely. We have to figure out a way to eliminate these steel and aluminum tariffs and the retaliation by Canada and Mexico resulting from them. Otherwise, I don't think this thing is going to fly. The problem is that we started out with this, you know, steel and aluminum was a national security issue. But it was also clear by statements made by a number of administration officials that they were also aimed at bringing Canada and Mexico into this new uh, trade agreement, using it as leverage. And now that they're in, they expect the steel tariffs to go away. They never believed that they were justified on national security grounds anyway. Uh, and if it was leverage, well, we've got an agreement, so they should go away. And the administration is saying, no, no, in order for them to go away, those two countries have to agree to limit their exports to us or we'll or agree to us imposing quotas on steel and aluminum. And, and that I think that's going to be a non-starter for those two countries. When we talk about the European Union, if the U.S. dispute with the Europeans over hormone beef were a child, it would be in college now. It's been going on. <laughs> it's been going on for some time. The EU's yep. process toward approving biotech and biotech traits is certainly a saga all in itself. You can understand why the Europeans don't want agriculture to be a part of the deal. You can see why the U.S. wants agriculture to be at the center. 
Absolutely. Those are prime examples of what the Europeans are concerned about. They also raise the, the fact that we use chlorinated water to rinse our chicken meat, which they don't allow be done. Those are the types of things that the Europeans are afraid will be included in the negotiations, and those are the kinds of things the U.S. is going to want to insist be included in the negotiations. It's it's going to be a, a knockdown, drag out, and uh, the other angle to all of this is the fact that uh, the administration is beginning to move forward with talks with uh, the U.K. so that once they're out of the EU, we can have a bilateral trade agreement with them, and they're much more hopeful that the British will be more willing to agree to U.S. terms on such things as GMOs and beef produced with hormones. If we looked at the Trans-Pacific Partnership, many would have said that Japan was a crown jewel. Is it possible that we could get as many concessions from the Japanese in a bilateral negotiation as we would have under the multilateral TPP? I think it's possible we'll get just about the same. I don't think we're going to get any more. That's just my personal view. The Japanese had to pay some political prices at home by agreeing to what they agreed to in TPP, and they're not happy with the fact they had to pay those political prices and then have the rug pulled out from under them when the U.S. pulled out. So they're not going to want to do any more than that, and uh, my guess is that uh, the agriculture sector in Japan is going to want to the, the Japanese to do less. <laughs> and maybe hold out for doing exactly the same and no more if the U.S. were to rejoin TPP. It is my guess that a free trade agreement with Japan, uh, with the European Union, and perhaps the U.K. would probably come later rather than sooner. It's going to take some time to develop that. But if the U.S. is successful in forging an agreement or at least showing progress toward an agreement, can that help to change the attitude of the Chinese and their relationship with the U.S.? It's possible, I suppose. Uh, I think the most important thing that will change the attitude of the Chinese uh, toward the U.S. and begin to work together is some sort of a sign, an indication from the U.S. side that they're willing to pull back on the Section 301 tariffs that we applied recently and the steel and aluminum tariffs and other tariffs we've applied, like on washing machines. Uh, show some flexibility in those in those areas, and, and we'll see progress. But if the U.S. is working with other countries, that could put some pressure on on China. But by the same token, uh, while we're not negotiating with a lot of those countries, uh, the Chinese are reaching out more and more toward them. So they're playing the same game. When you and I talked several weeks ago, you suggested that when major players like the U.S. and China are in negotiation. It almost has to get the very darkest and the very worst before it can get better. So has either side bled enough to bring them to the table? And how much is riding on the election November 6th? Well, I think if you talk to individual sectors, both here and in China, you probably hear people say we've bled enough. Uh, the question is whether uh, officials in the governments uh, feel that way. And I don't think they do. I don't think they felt that way uh, yet. Uh, I, I can't read the mind of the Chinese, but my sense is that they're very reluctant, especially the president, to show weakness, to lose face uh, in, in these types of negotiations and trade battles. You know, I, I guess I could say the same thing about the U.S. It's hard to know how this is going to play out. How much is riding on the November 6th election? 
I guess I would have to say in terms of the possible switchover of one or both houses, if it happens, it could be that the, uh, say, the uh, Democrats take over the House, they would insist on some changes to uh, recently agreed uh, agreements like uh, U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement before they would be willing to approve it. Uh, I, that, that's pretty typical, as a matter of fact. Uh, there's an outstanding agreement that hasn't been ratified or approved by Congress, and Congress changes. They almost always insist on some changes to allow them to approve it. That's, that's happened frequently. That happened with NAFTA. It happened with Korea, Colombia, Pan- Panama. After an election, changes had to be made to agreements that were already approved or already signed. So I, I think that would happen. The Democrats tend to be, historically at least, a little more protectionist, less free trade. So they might actually be supportive of some of the actions the president has taken with respect to using tariffs as leverage. We'll have to wait and see on that. I have heard it said by some analysts that if there is a leadership change in one or in both houses, that would strengthen the position of the Chinese in their negotiation, or at least in this trade war with the U.S. Do you buy into that? I don't think so. Um, I guess you could make that argument. Uh, but like I said, I think the administration is going to do what the administration wants to do. I, and I don't think it's going to necessarily uh, pay that much attention to what the House, uh, led by Democrats, is, is insisting that it do or not do. And the fact that there are many in the Democratic Party that have supported the, the types of trade actions that the president has been taking. Looking at the Chinese buying patterns, obviously a shift away from the U.S. through the marketing year. Uh, export sales of soybeans to China down 97% for the first seven weeks of the marketing year. And we continue to see movement that perhaps they're buying rapeseed meal uh, in other places. They're buying almost exclusively from Brazil and uh, touting the fact that there may be more than 800 million bushels of soy in reserve that they might be able to survive on their own until the new crop Brazil comes in. What do you see of the Chinese, not by what they say, but by what they do in their relationship with the U.S., especially as it relates to soybeans and agriculture? You know, they're doing everything in their power to avoid having to pay tariffs and avoid having to buy products from the United States, especially soybeans. I mean, that's that's the, the number one uh, item. Of course, pork and others have been hit, too, but uh, soybeans has been clobbered the most, and uh, they're doing everything they possibly can uh, to, to keep that up, thinking that the pressure will, will grow and grow and grow in the United States as a result. At some point, one has to believe that their supply, such as they have or claim to have and uh, supply from other suppliers might not be sufficient and they have to come back in and buy more from the United States. Uh, they will they will try to avoid that at all costs, but it may be that that will happen. Uh, of course, the other thing is African swine fever has been detected and they've been culling a lot of pigs in, in China. So uh, perversely, that could uh, reduce some demand for soybeans in general. The president said that the Chinese are just not ready to make a deal yet. So what are the signs? What are the symptoms, Paul, that tell you that, that, that the ice might start to melt and that the two sides might earnestly come to the table and negotiate? I think when the impact of tariffs on both sides becomes such that maybe becomes politically untenable, 
both for the Trump administration and for the Chinese. Maybe it has to be on both sides at the same time. Uh, and then that opportunity to see whether uh, we could make uh, some progress in the trade war will happen when the president and Xi, Chinese president, uh, meet at the end of November. Most observers believe that will happen. They're talking about having it, having such a meeting. And uh, uh, I think if there's a hope for some uh, progress uh, on trade uh, within the next uh, four, five, six months, it would be it then. The administration suggesting that not only were they looking at FTAs, again, with Europe and with Japan and the U.K., but they were also looking down the road and looking at South Africa, perhaps India, and some other nations for potential trade deals. Is there real opportunity there for U.S. agriculture, and is it low-hanging fruit, or is it yet to come? My impression is that what uh, the administration thinks of when it thinks when it talks about trade agreements is uh, different than what my experience and most most of us in the trade field uh, have experienced, which which is working toward free trade agreements that include virtually all trade between two parties or more parties if it's a plurilateral agreement. What the administration I think thinks of is something that's a little more transactional, uh, give and take commodity, uh, product by product, you do this and we'll do that on this product. And when uh, enough good deals are reached, wrap it up with a bow and call it a day. And uh, that's sort of the European model of a free trade agreement. It's it's not free trade in the sense that it's across the board, uh, virtually all products between the parties. It's more sector by sector. And frequently when that when you have a negotiation like that, the one sector, the one that's most politically sensitive all over the world is agriculture, and it's the most likely to be left out. And that's the concern I have about all of these. Oh, we're going to have a trade agreement with India or Philippines or whatever. I don't see it as a normal free trade agreement. I see it as mainly focused on manufactured products, mainly focused on avoiding steel or eliminating steel tariffs or avoiding the threat of auto tariffs. And I'm, I'm really concerned for agriculture that it will be the sector that will be uh, either left out right from the get-go or left out by the end of the, the negotiations. Last week we had Margaret Ziegler, uh, the executive director of the Global Harvest Initiative, and she was talking about the GAP study. And one of my questions for her was about trade. And would the fear of trade prevent the U.S. from having the opportunity to satisfy the food, fiber, fuel needs of some particular countries, that protectionist measures have proven over time that they're really not successful. How do you see trade and these low-income countries? Can we help them if we're able to trade with them? My feeling uh, throughout my career has always been that countries are more likely to buy our farm products, our high-quality, uh, high-value farm products, if they have enough income to do so. You know, as long as they're poor, they're not. You know, and you look across the examples since World War II of countries that were devastated and have increased incomes and middle class has grown. Those are the markets where our exports have expanded the most. So the only way, uh, you know, for countries to do that is for them to export too. So exporting back and forth is a good thing. I agree. And uh, conversely, 
you look at countries that have been traditionally protectionist and tried to keep product out of their market, increase their own self-sufficiency, they're the ones that have stayed uh, stayed poor. Paul Drasick, we appreciate your thoughts and your insight into this issue of global trade. We thank you for taking time from a busy schedule to visit with us. It is open mic. You have the last word. Well, it was good talking to you. I hope I don't sound too pessimistic. Uh, long term, I'm still optimistic. Uh, we'll we'll figure this out. Uh, we'll get back on the path of freer trade, more open markets, which has benefited agriculture. Uh, I started out by mentioning that when I began work in this area, uh, we were exporting $7.2 billion and we're up to $120 billion, and, and uh, I, I'd like to take credit for it, but it's the farmers that did it and the people working to promote uh, our agricultural exports all over the world. I hate to see those all lost. Our thanks to Paul Drazik with DTB Associates, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Global sugar subsidies are increasing at a threat to 142,000 sugar industry jobs in the U.S. Learn more about the American Sugar Alliance Zero for Zero Sugar Policy at SugarAlliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.